The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. excited for this morning, and I want to invite you, um, if you have your Bible, grab it. Open with me to Matthew 3. Um, And by the way, if you're using one of our journal Bibles, uh, we're going to be on pages 14 through 16 this morning. If you don't have a journal Bible and you'd want one, we'd love to give you one. So we have them in the back. Just make sure to grab one. Um, We are excited. We are so excited to be going through Matthew. And uh, today we get to pick up right where we left off uh, last week. Last week, uh, we were introduced to John. And uh, we, we talked about John a lot last week. John, most likely Jesus' cousin, um, the one called by God, the prophet called by God to prepare the way for Jesus, the first prophet in, in over 400 years, um, a crazy wilderness man. And he was calling people to repent. He was calling people to hear the message and to repent, to be baptized. And uh, as we talked about, that's what earned him the nickname, John the Baptist. And, and that's not that he was like John the Southern Baptist. He was not, this is not like a denominational affiliation here. This is John the Baptist, called John the Baptist because of what he was doing. He was baptizing. So John the Baptizer is, is one way to think about about this. And, and I want to pull out one more thing from last week as we get started into our Texas week. Um, I think this will help set the stage. So the state of the condition of the people of God during this time, uh, the, uh, of Israel at this time that, that Matthew was writing was dismal. And um, I want to give you a quick quote. I gave this quote last week, um, but it's going to help bridge, okay? So I want to give you this quote And I think we're going to see this more in action this week, okay? So here's the quote um, from a historian. It says, the condition of God's covenant people in Jesus' day was dismal. The priests who were supposed to represent the people of God were crooks. They were the wicked men that Isaiah had prophesied about, completely out of touch with God and his covenant. They were a nation in need of repentance. This was the people John was called to address. This was the people that John was called to go and give this message. And as we're going to see, John does not back down. And he does not soften the message to make it more palatable. In fact, just a heads up warning. If you consider yourself more of a peacemaker, if you're honest and you're a little bit of a people pleaser and you just like, you, you think, I hate conflict. Why won't people just be nice, play nicely? If that is you, man, John's going to frustrate you today. Um, this story, is, John, is so direct, and we get to witness this fantastic scene that has huge implications, a huge message for us. And um, I believe that through this, and I'm going to read it here in a second, we are going to be called to ask ourselves in a, a really important question, which is this, where is your confidence? So I want to start, I want to read our text. We're going to be in in Matthew 3, 7 through 12. Says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, 
you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your word and um, we are grateful for Matthew. Thank you for giving us your word for giving us Matthew. I thank you for the time we've already had walking through this. And I pray that this morning you would allow us to come to it with open hearts and minds, that you would speak, that we would hear, and that we would apply through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so the scene is clear. We have this prophet, wilderness man, preaching repentance, calling for repentance, and we have people coming to hear the message, and not only are they coming, not only are they hearing it, they're responding to it um, by taking the steps, stepping into the water. We have people coming, hearing John, repenting, and then being baptized by John. So people are responding, and it's getting the attention of leadership. And so here in our text, we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to John, seeing what is happening, and um, seeing all these people responding to John. And uh, now, these people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, hear me, we're not going to have time this morning to get into the nitty-gritty on who these, these, these dudes were. We will later. Our text, we're, we're walking, we're going to get to this later, but today, we're going to save that for another week. Today, I just want to bring out one thing about them, and that is um, that these are two of the major religious sects of the Jewish people, but more than that, they were the leadership of the Jewish people in this time. And, and what, what I mean here is they were both religious leaders, but they were political leaders as well. Uh, these were the leader, represented the official leadership of the Jewish people. In fact, at this time, the Jewish equivalent of our Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, was belonged to one of these two groups. The majority of it did. And so these were the leaders And here we have the leaders coming out to see what is happening with this crazy prophet in the wilderness, covered in skin and eating locusts, right? That's, they're coming out to see. And and here's the thing that sticks out to me, and it, it hit me right away. And I brought this out a little bit, but John is the one who calls them out first. He's the one who fires the first shot. You notice that? Like, he does, we're not told that the Pharisees and Sadducees are creating a scene here. We're not told that they're causing problems. He doesn't even wait for them to speak. We just have John going for it, you brood of vipers. My goodness, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, what we know is that through the power of God working in John, John is perceiving something in these men. 
He's perceiving a hypocrisy in them that he is calling out boldly. And as I was thinking about this, something hit me in the way Matthew articulates this. And I want to bring this out here because there's a sense that at least part of the hypocrisy that John is calling out, part of their hypocrisy is them pretending to support John. Here's what I mean. Look at this. Matthew 7, in, in, or Matthew in verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, would you notice it does not say coming for his baptism? Doesn't say coming to get baptized. Doesn't say coming to repent. No, it says coming to his baptism. Church, there is a big difference in that. They were coming as spectators. They were coming as spectators, not participants. They were coming not to repent, but to watch all the others repent. If you have the NIV, it will translate it as this. They were coming to where he was baptizing. Separates them even more. I think it's accurate. See, they weren't coming to be a part of it. They were coming to watch it. They were coming to see. But here's the thing. That's not what John was doing. And, and God was calling his people through John to repent. But the Pharisees and Sadducees, they weren't there to engage with that. They weren't there to honestly repent and engage. No, they were there for the show that was going on. They were there to spectate, to judge it. But here John was saying, nah, uh, 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 I want your heart, you brood of vipers. Let's bring that out for a second. Calling them a brood of vipers. Literally, that means the offspring of vipers, which is just awesome. Let me state the obvious, though, and I passed over this first. When I was looking at this, here's the most obvious no-brainer uh, statement of the day. Vipers are dangerous, okay? When John is calling them a brood of vipers, he's not just lobbing an, a sick burn, like insult, you know? Boom, got him. No, he is saying, you brood of vipers, meaning he's calling out the danger that they pose to others. He's calling out their danger because they were the leaders of the people and they were hypocrites. They weren't there to repent. They, weren't, they were there to spectate and to appear like they're holy. They were hypocrites. And, and, and you hear me, hypocritical leadership is dangerous. Hypocritical leadership is not a victimless crime. It's dangerous, and, and it leads people to destruction, and that is exactly what John is calling them out for, you brood of vipers. John's rebuke is going to echo Jesus' own words, and I want to I put them side by side a little bit. In Matthew 23, this is later in Jesus' ministry, but he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! And I hit this because there's an exclamation point on that, all right? And I don't want to yell. He says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outward you appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear to be righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then Jesus, it's exactly what John's calling out here, but Jesus is actually going to use the same language. Uh, just a few verses down, he says, you serpents, you brood 
of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Okay, we're going to see the similarities of Jesus' approach and John's approach in this. Jesus and John calling out the same thing. Hypocrisy, not just that though, the dangerous hypocrisy in the hearts of the leaders, um, in the hearts of the people. You brood of vipers. Through the power of God, John is seeing the hearts of these people. And this morning, I want to dig into what John says to them. Um, I believe there's some important things for us to see as we look at what John says to them. What's the first thing that John says? After, of course, calling them offsprings of vipers. What is, the, uh, what is the first thing he says? He says this. He gives him a simple, profound command. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John is calling them, not only, don't you come here to spectate. Don't come here just to look the part. Repent, honestly repent in such a way that your life is changed and that your life bears fruit. Now, we talked about repentance last week and how repentance is about turning around. It's, it's confessing and acknowledging the sin, but it doesn't just stay there. Repentance is actually turning. It's repentance. And, and I love the way John says this. He says, bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repent by responding to the gospel, faith, believing in Jesus, turning by grace we're saved through faith, made a new creation, we repent, so that now the fruit that we bear is in keeping. It comes from the grace and the work of God in our lives. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We don't bear fruit apart from repentance. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this command gets to something really important. I, I feel like most of this message is calling out obvious things this morning. Obvious statement number three, I think. Um, listen to this. John was telling the most outwardly religious people on the planet to bear fruit. Like, how crazy is that? Like, the Pharisees and Sadducees were bearing all kinds of outward fruit. I mean, they looked like they had it all together. They knew the law. They even added a little bit on top of the law to make sure that the law is not ever broken. Like they were all about, they were more religious than anyone else. And John is calling those people to bear fruit. John is calling people who on the surface were bearing the most fruit of anyone else on the planet. He was calling them to bear fruit. Because John is talking about their hearts. He's calling them to something more authentic and, and calling them to more than just the outward show. It's not good enough to look the part, to put on the pretty face, to know what to say, when to say it, what to do, when to do it. That's not enough. And if you think about it, if it were enough to look the part, then the Pharisees and Sadducees would be rock stars, not vipers. Right? But it's not enough. Bear fruit, yes. But bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Meaning, bear fruit that comes from a heart of faith. A heart that has responded to the gospel. A heart that comes from repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. Have you heard that phrase? It might apply to some aspects of life. But hear me, it cannot, it cannot does not, cannot, does not and cannot apply to your walk with Jesus. It cannot. 
Why? Because going through the motions, looking the part, it leads to emptiness. It leads to a whitewashed tomb. Some of you know what this feels like. You have been there. It leads to hypocrisy. And if you're really good at it, do you know where it leads? To a Pharisee and a Sadducee. Like if you're really good at faking it till you make it, you're a Pharisee. We cannot fake it till we make it. Why? Because the gospel is that Christ has accomplished it, period. Here's what that means. It means that Christ made it. The work is done. So now we no longer have to fake it. It's made. We don't have to fake it. Now we get to walk in his grace bearing gospel fruit. We're not saved by looking the part. You're not saved by looking great on the outside, looking like you have it all together. We're not saved as we just watch the show and watch as others repent. Look to Christ He wants your heart. He wants to transform you from the inside out. He is not about the fake. He is about real, authentic repentance and fruit. Man, we could be here all day. But we're going to go to the second command, and that's in verse 9. And we're going to bring it all together. Verse 9 says, do not presume to say to yourself, we got Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to, from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. So the first command was to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not as a hypocrite, but in keeping with repentance. Command number two is do not presume. Now, what does that mean? To presume something is to assume something with confidence that you have no justification or proof about. Um... It's to confidently assume something. And here it leads to the question, what are they presuming on? Well, they're presuming that because they are ethnically Jewish, since we have Abraham as our father, they say, that they're going to be okay. They were presuming that since they were a part of the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, since they had Abraham as their father, children of Abraham, they're going to be fine. That's their presumption. But here's the thing. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, forever. Um, We talked about this last week. What that means is that God doesn't have grandchildren. We brought this out last week. We're not saved by our parents' faith, our parents' repentance, any more than we're condemned by our parents' lack of faith or lack of repentance. God doesn't have grandchildren. Scripture says he has children through the work of Jesus. Through faith, we are made children of God. And John is calling out something here. And he's calling out a false confidence, a false assurance. And what is this false assurance? We're not saved. They were not saved by their birth family or the faith of their parents. They were not saved because they were ethnically Jewish. None of those things saved them. None of them. The Pharisees and Sadducees seem to have this false assurance that because we're the religious leaders of God's chosen people, the most religious of God's chosen people, I mean, come on. I mean, that's got to count for something, right? To state it as clearly as I can, no. That does not count for anything in your salvation. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by anything else. And just to be clear, not only do those things not save you, I want to take it one more step. They don't even make you more savable. 
They don't even make you, they don't help your chances um, or set you apart from the other heathens around you. They don't get you closer to salvation. They don't help. In Christ, we can have assurance that we're saved, but our assurance does not come from anything else other than our faith in his completed work for our sin. Our Hope and our confidence is in nothing else apart from Jesus. Let us not, church, let us not presume. If the Pharisees, I'll say it again, if the Pharisees did not have a leg to stand on, hear me, what leg do you and I have to stand on? There is no leg. One day we're going to stand before God. And um, we cannot stand on how good we looked the part. Okay? We cannot stand on our birth family. We cannot stand on our church attendance. We cannot stand on the good things we've done. Just put them all there. You can't stand even on your community group attendance. Like next level holiness. No, no, hear me. All of those things, they're good things. Like it is awesome. If you have a family who knows and follows Jesus, praise God for the blessing. What a joy that is. Um, If you're a part of a church family, come on, get involved. Um, show up, be a member, be a part of a community group, all such good things, all such a blessing. These are great things, but none of them are saving things. None of these things can save you. Why? Because you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So where is your confidence today? Let us not presume. I think um, too often we can place our confidence in the wrong things. And... uh, I was thinking about this this week, and I've, I couldn't help but um, share an experience that I, I had that just came to my mind with this that illuminates this really well. I, I have shared a part of the story a long time ago, but man, does it just, it just, all of it flooded in my mind. So when I was in my undergrad, um, I was in a Bible college in Kansas City, and uh, one of the assignments that we were given was to go door-to-door evangelism. And uh, as we went, uh, we were given a tool. It was a survey. And uh, well, it, was a, it was a tool disguised as a survey, right? And uh, the assignment was to divide in twos, in pairs, knock on doors, tell people, hey, I'm a student, right? Truth. And I was wondering if I can ask you a few questions. It's just a part of a class that I'm taking. All true, right? Um, and so the questions would start off easy, but then whoop, they would turn a corner. They really would. And it would, it would end at the final question. It gets to the meat. It said, if you were to die today, stand before Jesus, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? This was the final question of the survey. At this point, some people were just mad. They knew what we were doing, so they slammed the door on us. But so, most people did respond. And i um, got to tell you, nearly all of the responses, all, nearly, was, well, I'm a good person, mostly, uh, most of the time. It was some version of that. Well, I'm a pretty good person. In other words, for most people, their confidence in heaven was on their good-ish behavior. At least in comparison to the other boneheads around them, they felt like they had a better chance. That was their confidence. It's just mind-blowing to me. I will say, I'm going to share one more response, but and through the whole process, no one gave us the gospel. No one. This is in Kansas City, Missouri. No one gave us. Um, 
I'll never forget the response of one of the last houses we knocked on, an older man, um, and his response to the final question was, oh my goodness. So uh, we asked, like, why should Jesus let you in? And he said, I'm American. (laughs) What? And then he looked at me like, you're a bonehead. He was like, it's a Christian nation, right? What? What? I was speechless in this moment, which is okay, because at that point, he was kind of upset and closed the door on me and and my friend. And so um, here's the thing, though. This whole assignment, as much as it stretched me, uh, it did illuminate something for me that is so important. It showed me that we have a lot of confidence in the wrong things. It showed me, um, to use the language of our text, we presume a lot. Um, do not presume. A Christian country being raised in a Christian family, holding membership or even serving in leadership at your local church, none of these things is where our confidence lies. Our hope cannot be in these things. For the Pharisees and Sadducees, their confidence was in their Jewishness, their Jewish ethnicity. They were presuming on their ethnic connection to Abraham, and John is calling them, their hearts, repent. And um, by the way, this is going to be a huge theme in the the rest of the New Testament. Um, You don't need to turn with me here, but uh, Paul will say it directly in Romans 9. In verse 8, he says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. He says, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Says it directly. In other words, it's not enough to claim Jewish ethnicity. Why? Because our only hope and claim is Christ. And this is why John says in Matthew, in our text, God's able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. And by the way, just as some food for thought this morning, if you are here and you are a Gentile, meaning you're not Jewish, and you are here and you're not Jewish, Gentile, and you're a follower of Jesus, if that's you this morning, You are a living, breathing example of John's words in this text. You are the ones among the stones that are being raised up. You're a living, breathing example of of being a child of the promise, as Paul says. You've been counted as an offspring, as a child of God, not through your own work or fruit, not through your birth family, your church membership, but through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ Alone, look to Jesus. And this leads me to the third and final part this morning. Um, so John calls them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he calls them, don't presume on anything. And so the question is, what do we do now? Where does John the Baptist go in the rest of this text? And he calls us to look to Jesus. And I want you to see something here Um, that John says. And I want to read just 10, 11, and 12. It says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after, Jesus, coming after me, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. Gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, I want you to look at what this text just said about Jesus. First, John is calling us, look to Jesus because he is worthy. 
Jesus is the worthy one. Look at verse 11 again. I baptize you with water. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. John says, I am unworthy. He is worthy. Worthy meaning full of all honor, glory, and praise. There's no praise too high, fully deserving. John is clear. I am preparing the way for the only one who is worthy. I am unworthy. Christ is the worthy one. It can be easy to forget this. In fact, um, call out something here. Um, I think in our flesh, man, it does feel good to pursue a little bit of that honor and a little bit of that glory. It's, it's just to take a little bit of the credit. For anyone who's ever served in ministry, you know what I mean. Pastors, leaders, volunteers, uh, missionaries, all of us who serve together and the mission that God has given us, you probably know what I mean because when you see God doing incredible things in your life or in people's lives around you or in the ministry that you're a part of, man, it is easy to take just a wee bit of that praise. And not all of it, just a wee bit of it, just to take it and hear John the Baptist says, no. I'm preparing the way for him. He is worthy. I am unworthy. I'm even unworthy to carry his sandals. John has this view of Jesus that I think we all need to grab hold of. That Jesus is the worthy one, the one above us, the only worthy one. And from that, he's not just the worthy one, But man, he's going to settle on this, the second one, that Jesus is the judge. We look to Jesus, who is the judge. Verse 12 is a hard verse. The winnowing fork is hand, the threshing floor, gathering the wheat, burning the chaff. Listen, this is powerful imagery of Jesus as the judge, Jesus as the differentiator. What I mean by that is Jesus is the worthy one with the power and authority to distinguish between those who are his and those who are not. He is the judge. And I want to take a moment to read something else that Jesus has said later in the Gospels, later in Matthew, actually. And and, and you don't need to turn with me here. In fact, I would encourage you just to take this in. I'm going to put it on the screen. Um... I want you to listen to what Jesus says right at the end of his ministry, right before he would be betrayed and arrested. Listen to what he says. Matthew 25, 31 says, Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Talk about the worthy one, right? Says this, before him will be gathered all nations. He will separate people from one from one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will then place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In contrast, he will say in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What is going on here? Well, in this moment, Jesus is revealing himself as the judge. 
the one who separates, the great and only differentiator from the left and from the right. And this is what John means here in verse 12 with the winnowing fork. Now, this is an agricultural image, and it good chance this is probably lost on most of us because very few of us threshed this week, I'm assuming. Um, but this imagery is, is powerful. Um, it's with, when with a winnowing fork, the wheat, the good stuff, is separated from the chaff, the useless stuff. And most of the time, what you would do is you would get a pitchfork-looking thing, stick it in the harvest, and you'd flick it up in the air into some good wind. And what would happen is the wheat is heavy, and the chaff is not. And as they would do this, the, the, the wheat would fall, and the chaff would separate itself from the good stuff, and it would separate, and the, and the wheat would be collected, because that's the good stuff, right? And the chaff would then be collected and would be burned. And I don't know, I know not many of us threshed, but in this context, this imagery would have been fresh on their mind. Um, and here, the message is clear. Christ is the one with the power and authority to judge, to separate the wheat from the chaff. And listen, I refuse to, to dumb down or soften the blow of this message that Scripture gives us here. Um, there is, in fact, an eternal heavenly kingdom with Christ where we will be with him forever and ever. Peace, shalom, life. And there is another kingdom of eternal darkness, hell, separated from him. I know this is redundant, but these are both very real realities. And Jesus speaks to these realities more than almost any other topic in his earthly ministry. And that's what makes this last point all the more glorious. Jesus is the worthy one. Jesus is the judge. And therefore, we look to Jesus, and Jesus alone is our Savior. Because he's the worthy one, he's the only powerful and able one to declare us worthy through his work. Because he is the righteous judge, he's the only powerful one able to declare us righteous through his own righteousness. Through Christ, we are made righteous and forgiven because he is the only one who can save church. This is very good news. This is what John is pointing to when he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But there's someone coming later. Sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And then what does he say? He says, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. John is saying, Jesus' ministry, his work is different from mine. His baptism is different from mine. My point is to point to his work to prepare the way. I've got water. Jesus has got Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? It means that Jesus' salvation, salvation in Christ, is more than just water. Getting into the water. Jesus is going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. Spurgeon says it like this. Repentance is well attended by washing in water. But the true baptism of the believer by the Lord Jesus himself brings us into spiritual floods of holy fire. See, the baptism of spirit and fire, this is our salvation. This is the work of God through the Holy Spirit. This is, this is going from death to life, new creation, conversion. This is what this is. This is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus is doing. 
Um, in other words, one way to think about this is we always say, like, when we baptize, um, celebrate baptism here, and we come around the, the water, we always say that this is an outward sign of an inward reality. Just like John's was an outward sign of repentance, of an inward reality, right? Um, but here's the thing. The baptism here of Jesus and the spirit and fire is different because this baptism is not just an outward sign of an inward reality. No, Jesus's baptism actually changes our inward reality. This is very different. Only Jesus can do that. Our water baptism points to Jesus's baptism, the salvation we have in him. Only Jesus can baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire because only Jesus can save. Amen. In our text, John is preparing the way. Jesus would not just come with the message of salvation. Jesus would come with the actual power, real power to save. Church, look to Jesus. Put your confidence in him. And let me do this. I want to bring this all together as we close and respond this morning. Um, listen, one day, you and I, all of us, are going to stand before the Lord. One day, we're going to stand before him. And anything and everything that we try to stand on will be tested. So your goodness, your good behavior, your family tree, if you're standing on that, uh, your church attendance, the nation you're a part of, your good deeds, you being a self-identified good or good-ish person, your ability to be good in comparison to the people around you. Um, listen, anything and everything that we try to stand on, on that day, will be put to the test. The question we started with is, where is your confidence? What are you standing on? If college Justin were to knock on your door with that crazy little survey, what would you say? One day, when you stand before the Lord, anything and everything that you're standing on will be tested. And anything and everything apart from Jesus is going to give way. There is only one foundation, only one thing, only one Savior who will stand on that day. Our only hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ, his completed and perfect work. That is it. Because all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground, all other foundations will give away. Only Christ will stand and only those in Christ will stand. This is what Jesus says in John 14 when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am the only solid ground. No matter who you are today, what your life has looked like up to this moment, look to Jesus, trust Jesus, stand on Jesus. Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Meaning, if you place your confidence, your trust, your faith in Christ, if you look to Jesus, you will be saved. This is our gospel hope. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't presume on anything or anyone else. Instead, look to Jesus, come to Jesus, respond to the good news by placing your trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Here in, this, in a moment, we're gonna respond um, through prayer and as we sing. And I pray that you respond this morning.
Because here's the incredible truth that we get to stand on together. You ready for this? I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) For all who trust in Christ, for all of those who look to Jesus, you can be sure today and forever with complete and utter and complete confidence that Jesus is our foundation and he will always be our solid ground. Always. So I want to finish with a line of an old song as we respond. Because of Christ, because of the grace of God through faith in Jesus, we as a church, as his people, are able to sing this song and know that on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.